I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. And on Jacobin Radio today, Wagner Moura, Brazilian actor known for his work in the Elite Squad films and the Netflix series Narcos, joins us to talk about the volatile political situation in Brazil, where Mariela Franco, the popular leftist Rio City councilor and her driver, were assassinated on March 14th, sparking huge protests across Brazil. Mariela Franco championed the poor in the favelas and was a harsh critic of President Temer's recent move to put the military in charge of security in Rio State, where 154 people were killed in January alone as a result of police action. We'll get Wagner Mura's views, and we'll talk to him about the film he's directing, Marighella, about the Bahian revolutionary Marxist writer and guerrilla fighter, Carlos Marighella, whose theories about the cities as the source of rebellion have renewed relevance in the Brazil of today. We also talk to Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos, professor of political economy at Campinas University in Brazil, about the political and economic situation in Brazil in the wake of escalating police violence and the targeted assassination of Mariela Franco. We'll get Pedro Paulo's analysis of the political calculus beyond urban security in the move by the highly unpopular President Temer to put the military in charge of security as well as the prospects for the left in the coming election. Plus, we hear from Chris Phelps from the University of Nottingham. He joins us to talk about the wider implications of the militant, creative, and historic month-long strike of British university lecturers who've just reached a settlement after waging a sustained and implacable strike that was joined by thousands, including the crucial and creative energy of students. The strike was about much more than pensions and austerity. It struck at the heart of the quality of higher education that has been commodified and marketized, and the victory has huge ramifications for university life and workers everywhere. All this on Jacobin Radio when we come back in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. We're going to begin with the escalating police violence in Brazil with Brazilian film, television, and stage actor Wagner Moura, who's known in this country for his portrayal of Captain and later Colonel Robert Nascimento in the Elite Squad films. And he plays Pablo Escobar in the Netflix series Narcos. And he's now directing the film. We're going to talk about it later. It's called Mariela, about the Bahian revolutionary Marxist writer and guerrilla fighter Carlos Mariela, who died in 1969, and whose theories of urban guerrilla and cities as the focus of rebellion have relevance for today. But we're going to talk about that in a minute. Right now, Wagner Mura joins us to talk about the volatile political situation where Mario Franco, the popular leftist Rio City councilor and her driver, were assassinated. And that sparked huge protests across Brazil. And Mario Franco was a member of PSOL, that's the Socialism and Liberty Party, and again, black woman. She championed the poor in the favelas who were suffering not only from the conditions of poverty, but also police brutality and shootouts. And she was a very vocal critic of that. And there's so much more to say, but I want to bring in Wagner Mura and get his views on this. So welcome to Beneath the Surface. Thank you, Susie. Why don't we begin with the assassination that looks like a professional hit and very targeted of Mariel Franco, and maybe you could tell our listeners who she was. Mariel was a very, very important politician in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. She was elected with 46,000 votes in the last election, and she was a black woman a woman that came from the favelas, a homosexual woman. This is what's happening, Susie. Many, many, many black people are being killed in Brazil and in Rio right now. Every 21 minutes, one black person is killed in Brazil. We cannot discuss any social issue in Brazil, in my country, if we don't talk about racism. What makes the assassination of Marielle different is that Marielle was a council woman. She was a councillor in the chamber of Rio de Janeiro. And Marielle was investigating the military intervention in Rio de Janeiro. And if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, and it seems like a little awkward, it's because it is awkward. The second biggest city 
in Brazil is under military intervention, which brings us back to the period of the dictatorship in Brazil. Can I just interrupt for a second for our listeners? Sure. Because this seems to be a move by President Temer, who's incredibly unpopular and who orchestrated what we're calling, I guess, a judicial or administrative coup against Dilma Rousseff, but that he's now saying that he's doing this to prevent the violence by having the military come into the city. So go ahead. It's absurd. Like you said, Temer is a president that is not considered a legit president for many Brazilians. His approval rates are under 3% in Brazil, which is uh, absurd. What? what happened in 2016 was a political coup d'etat. 2018 is an election year. So what Temer is trying to do with the military intervention, with excuse of facing violence in Rio, which is it is bad. It's always been a violent city, but it's much worse right now, especially after the democratic path that Brazil was walking. We had this big rupture two years ago. But what he's trying to do is to satisfy the middle class, especially the rich people in Brazil. They want these people to feel safe. So this intervention that he's doing, and by the way, that's what Marielle was fighting against. She was leading in the chamber an investigation about the military intervention and the abuse of police, the extreme brutal violence that the police and military people were treating people from the favelas. We have to ask, where are the tanks? Where is the army? Where are the soldiers? They're not in the fancy neighborhoods of Rio de Janeiro. They're not in Copacabana. They are not in Ipanema. They are in the favelas. So what President Temer is saying with this military intervention is, we have an enemy, and our army is prepared to face this enemy. And who is this enemy? The enemy is the people that live in the favelas, which is absurd. It's a horrible situation, and that's why Marielle, that's one of the reasons I think that Marielle was killed. So this is really quite interesting because you're saying that there's actual tanks, so there's a real military presence. It's not just that there's like an administrative taking charge of the police, but that there's a military presence in the favelas. Is there, oh, definitely. And are there any repercussions? Is the rest of the population of the city and the state saying anything about this, or are they being silent? Many people, many people, people like Marielle were really vocal in being against the intervention. The intervention is something, it's very similar to the so-called war on drugs, which is something that basically criminalizes poor people, especially black people that live in poor neighborhoods in Brazil. It's a way of social control. It's a way to incarcerate and to be free to kill, because let's say this again, Marielle was a human rights person. And one of the last things that she said was she pointed her finger to one of the battalion of the military police in Rio, who she accused of killing, of treating the population with brutality, and she accused them of killing two young people in the favelas. So it was discovered today that the bullets that killed Marielle were bullets that came from, were bought by the federal, the Brazilian federal police. So she was denouncing the, the brutality of the police. She was against the military intervention, and uh, she was killed with bullets that were bought for the Brazilian federal police. So it is really clear for everybody that she was executed. And we don't know yet. The investigations are still going on. So people don't know yet who killed her or who were the people that were interested in killing her. But killing Marielle, in my opinion, is not only killing her voice. It's not only silencing a voice of a woman that was being extremely vocal in the defense of the human rights of the people of the favelas of Brazil. Killing Marielle was also... They were making a statement. What they are saying is, if we have the courage to kill a counselor, if we have the courage to do that, so be careful with what you say. If you are just a, a community leader or someone who doesn't have that sort of attention or protection. 
so that's why I'm super, I'm glad with the, all the movement and all the protests on the streets of Rio. I wish I was there. Well, that's the question I was going to ask you next, Wagner Mura, is whether or not you thought that this was a mistake because she'll be the martyr for the movement and spark even more protests against the government. Exactly. Is that what you exactly. think? I totally agree with that. It had the opposite effect. It had the symbolical effect that the people that killed her wished. Of course, that there are many people who are afraid now. Of course that people that have no protection are afraid. But I think that it absolutely had the opposite. Marielle's uh, death, it's a turning point, I think, in the Brazilian political environment and social environment. Unfortunately, a person like Marielle had to die for this to happen. Well, I want to thank you for that. And let's switch now to talk about the film that you're directing, Wagner Moura, about the urban guerrilla warfare theorist and revolutionary Carlos Mariela, and why your film, which apparently will be ready, you'll tell us next year, why his ideas are especially timely now. It's interesting, because when I started this film, I wanted to, it's a film about a um, sacrifice and it's a film but i was very interested in the generations we were under a very heavy dictatorship from 64 to 85 so our democracy is really young so i was always very interested in the people from that generation who decided to do something about it even if they had to give their lives for it and marigella the main character of my film was a real person, of course. It's based on real facts. And he was the leader of the resistance in Brazil back in the 60s and the 70s. And he was a black man who was killed in a car by bullets of the police. So my film, the film that I started thinking about in 2013, now, uh, mm. and since last, since 2016, became... The way we see the film really changed because we are not making a film about 64 anymore. It now became a film about nowadays, unfortunately. Well, maybe you could just tell the listeners a little bit because it wasn't just that Carlos Marighello was a black man who opposed police violence and the military dictatorship, but that he actually wrote the mini-manual of the urban guerrilla and had concrete ideas about mm -hmm. the cities rather than, say, rural guerrilla warfare, as you saw in the countryside in places like China and even Cuba and elsewhere. But this was to wage war against the dictatorship in the cities and see it as the source of rebellion. So what does that mean for now? And is that something that you're trying to focus on? I think the most important word nowadays in Brazil is resistance. Mm. is to resist after the coup d'etat. They started with the reforms, the tax reforms and the labor reforms, and now the social security reform, which are basically reforms that are being really, really, really horrible to poor people in the country. So it's a moment in a country where we are really close to the dictatorship of the 60s and the 70s. Marighella was, and I want after my film, because his history was erased by the, the dictatorship. Uh, they didn't want people to talk about him. They, don't, they were not only happy to kill him, but they also changed people's perception of, of who he was. Marighella was a communist member of the Communist Party in Brazil. He was never a violent person, but he was one of the people after 64 who thought that there were no other ways to fight, to resist the brutality of the dictatorship than taking guns and using guns against, which I'm personally, I personally don't agree with, but it's hard to put yourself in the head of someone in the 60s that didn't have any other, probably didn't have any other option. And uh, I admire him. I admire people that resist. I admire Marielle a lot and a lot of other people in, in Brazil who are doing it right now. And Marielle became a very international figure. Jean-Paul Sartre and Jean-Luc Godard, especially in, in France, 
he was an intellectual, so things that he was writing were published in Europe. And like you said, his most controversial book is The Manual of the Human Guerrilla, who is still around. Well, will you come back when you premiere this film and talk about it? I would love to, definitely. My goal is having the film to help changing the narrative in my country. You know, it's important for me to be talking about this here with you, for example, because the press in Brazil is totally dominated. And it's like I explained to my American friends, like, imagine if the only way you had here in the States to get information was Fox News. Yeah. It's like, this is the sort of thing that happens in Brazil. Thank God there is internet now. But I'm really devastated by what happened to Marielle. I knew her. She was a friend. And it was not just killing a person. They tried to kill a spirit, an idea. And the, the good thing is the protests, they showed that, like you said, the effect was quite the opposite. Thank you for joining us today on Jacobin Radio, Wagner Mora. And lots of luck on the film, and thanks for taking the time to expose your journalistic side as well and talk about the politics of violence in Brazil today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to continue in our discussion of the current political and economic situation in Brazil with Pedro Paulo Zaluth Bastos. He's a professor of political economy at Campinas University, known as Unicamp, outside Sao Paulo. He's currently on sabbatical in Berkeley, and he's joining us for a deeper look at the political situation in the wake of escalating police violence and the targeted assassination of Marielle Franco. We're going to get Pedro Palos's analysis of the political calculus beyond urban security in the move by the highly unpopular, now we just learned only 3% popularity for President Temer, to put the military in charge of security, as well as the prospects for the left in the coming election. So with all that, welcome, Pedro Paulo. I'm really pleased to have you back on Beneath the Surface. I'm pleased also for the Thank you very much for the invitation. Maybe we could just start with who was Marielle Franco, and do we know who the suspects are in her assassination? And maybe within that, could you also just say something? She was a member of PSOL, and that's the Party of Socialism and Liberty. Maybe you could also let our listeners know a little bit about that. Okay. Well, Marielle was a well-known black feminist activist against social, racial, and gender inequalities, against drug gangs and police violence, for human LGBTQ rights and better living conditions in Rio Savelas, the Brazilian shanty towns. He was also a mother and municipal councillor in Rio. In the event, the driver, Anderson Pedro Gomes, was killed also. He was also a political militant, though it seems that he was not targeted. Well, Marielle was elected to the Rio Janeiro City Council in 2016 under the PSOL. It's always the party of socialism and liberty. And Marielle was the fifth most voted candidate in Rio with over 46,000 votes, which is a remarkable figure as it was her first time standing for office. Before that, she had been assistant to Marcelo Freixo, who is the most popular socialist politician in Rio for 10 years in Rio State Assembly since 2006. She advised him also in the investigations of the militias in Rio de Janeiro then. That's very important because the militias are suspects also in her assassination. Well, the militias are bands of former policemen that try to control poor neighborhoods in Rio, replacing drug gangs and selling protection and other services forcefully to the communities in question. So you're saying that these are sort of like off-time police people, or these are a special militarized police force? No, no, no. no. They're off-time or former policemen or ah. police people. So gangs, uh, essentially. That yeah. were not in office and longer, okay. both of them. And they try to control the poor neighborhoods to sell security, to okay. sell protection privately. Oh, so yeah. they make money off of uh, it as well. Yeah, of course, of course. And they were depicted in the Brazilian film The Lead Squad by right. director Jose Padilla with Wagner Moura. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the first one in 2007. 
Well, lately, Marielle has been assigned to be rapporteur of the military intervention in Rio, and he's been highly critical of this, denouncing it as a move that had some electoral purposes by Michel Temer, and given the increasing demand for law and order in Rio. Well, and she has just purposely denounced police violence in a poor neighborhood in Rio, actually pointing fingers to a high military office just last weekend. But the same day when she was killed, there was also an attempted assassination of the ex-wife of a militia leader, an ex-consular that was denounced in investigation by Freixo and Marielle in 2008. He is also depicted in the Leeds Court film. Mm. Actually, her current husband died also. So it's clear that the assassination was not a failed attempt at robbery, but a premeditated target killing. It came out now that a camera filmed a car that was parked for two hours wow. waiting for Marelli to go out in an event with uh, black female activists. I think in one of the reports that I read, she was aware that she was being followed and, in a sense, stalked. So she knew the danger that was very near. Yeah, I think so. I think so, because she had devised a Freixo. Freixo, for many years, had to have police protection because he was pretty much threatened by the militias, right? Mm. And this film showed that the car that followed Marielle's car also used the headlamp to make signals to another car, right? Mm. So it's clear that it was a target killing. The federal government is pointing to the usual suspects, of course, the drug dealers in Rio. I think it's a hypothesis that should not be ruled out, but some specialists in security are saying that the type of assassination was typical of a highly trained professional. He mm. was able to fire very quickly four bullets, into the head of Marielle. So it's a trained guy, of course. It just came out also that the bullets used in the killing were from the same series of bullets used in the greatest police slaughter in Sao Paulo in 2015 that had 70 killings, and these bullets were bought originally by the federal police in Brazil in 2005. So, Pedro Paulo, are you saying that because of the bullets and because of the professional nature of it, that this could be maybe not the work of the militia, but the work of the the government, yeah. the military, or the... Could be, could be from the militias, also the police. We don't know, actually, because sometimes these bullets are result, right? And ah. so it's not clear that they were kept with the police, actually. But in this case, in Sao Paulo, they were with the police, so that three military policemen and one civil policeman were convicted because of this great slaughter in Sao Paulo in 2015. So the suspects are mostly ex-policemen, maybe associated to real militias, or current policemen who are rattled by her criticisms of police violence in Rio and, of course, the military intervention. So, of course... Her assassination was a political execution. So how does this killing fit into the current conjuncture in Brazil? Was it isolated or does it express some undercurrents that, as Wagner Moura was saying, very reminiscent of the period of the dictatorship? Do you see that as well? Are there other things going on under the surface that perhaps will tell us a little bit more about it? Well, it's important to remark that there has been an escalation of political assassinations in Brazil lately. Since mid-2016, after the impeachment, the coup, there has been more or less 35 political assassinations of leaders of social movements around Brazil, right? Mm. And on the other hand, it's also important to note that urban violence in Brazil and Rio shot up after the recession of 2015. Police violence also. For instance, there were... 6,431 violent deaths in Rio State in 2017. That was a 7.5% increase from the previous year. In January 2018, two months ago, 154 people were killed because of police action in Rio State. It was nothing less than 
57% increase from January 2017, right? Yeah. Of course, Marielle was criticizing a lot police violence, both before and after the military intervention. And according to her, it got worsened after the military intervention that was decided last month. Policemen and military were taking pictures of all citizens in the poor neighborhoods and searching houses without a judge or court order, right? Mm, right. Uh, they were searching even school bags, backpacks of children come to school in the poor neighborhoods in Rio. So it seems that they were feeling much freer to coerce if we were already in a state of exception, as if the state and the coercive power of the state had total ability to transcend any kind of rule of law in the name of the public good, right? And the problem is that the Brazilian government could not pass recently its main legislative agenda, which was a reform of the pension system, mm. the Social Security Act. So it seems that they decided to change focus to the law and order agenda, and that's why they announced in February the military intervention in Rio, so what, right? Yeah, so what you're saying, Pedro Paulo, this is really interesting, that the decision for the military intervention in Rio had a political calculus that's way beyond just this urban security issue. And that's really uh, yeah. kind of the thing that I want you to move to talk about, because given how unpopular the government is and how it ousted through a political coup or administrative coup or judicial coup the previous government, how does that play in the situation right now? Well, the political calculus was to capitalize on the increasing popularity of the discourse of law and order. It's important to remark that it's not only a platform of rich people in Brazil, unfortunately. It's also very important to the traditional middle class, even to people from the working class, I think. For instance, Jair Bolsonaro, who is, of course, the preferred presidential candidate of the well-to-do in Brazil, most opinion polls, was a guy from the military that keeps on lauding the Brazilian military regime, the dictatorship, mm. has more or less 20% of the votes in the first round, according to recent polls. So he's a very popular guy also. So I think what Temer is trying to do is, of course, delivering something else to the Brazilian elites, as he could not deliver the social security reform that he promised, but he's also promising law and order to part of the Brazilian people that long for this. So it's not impossible that PMDB, who has been in every government since the military dictatorship, since 1985, PMDB is already preparing itself maybe to back the candidacy of Jair Bolsonaro, as all the, the candidates of PMDB who are related to the Temer government have been showing pretty poor ratings in our uh, polls as of now. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm talking to Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos. Well, this is really interesting. So maybe you could talk, Pedro Paulo, just a little bit more about the other side of this, because is it the case that this candidate you just talked about is in the strongman tradition, promising peace and security, in a sense, in the streets, like a Putin or a Duterte? Or is it more just a kind of bloviating populist? And are there any comparisons to this trend for right-wing populism, in a sense, elsewhere? Yes. Or is this also, and maybe you could say, because in Brazil, over the last period, we've seen tremendous mobilizations. And mobilizations, you know, over bad spending on the Olympics, and also on urban problems and on the austerity that Dilma was acquiescing to. And then, of course, to the impeachment. So in that situation, is there really a way forward for this uh, kind of populism or, or let's call it what it is, these dictatorial moves? I think there are a lot of similarities between Bolsonaro and the rightist populism that we see all around the world. And the curious thing is that he's emphasizing the law and order discourse, but he used to be a nationalist when mm. it comes to the economic affairs. 
but recently he has been joining some neoliberal economists and groups, also trying to get backing from very influential entrepreneurial association, corporate associations in Brazil, and he's clearly moving to a neoliberal agenda right now. And that is very important for people that supported the impeachment because the impeachment had basically two main objectives. The first one was to protect the politicians and business people from the car wash operation. Mm. And the second was to implement a radical new liberal program announced in the document by PMDB in 2015, a bridge to the future. And they didn't have success, absolute success, on this yet. They could not complete the agenda. And they pretty much depend on the results of the next election. And if, for instance, Lula is not allowed to run for office, Bolsonaro instantly become the favorite candidate, I think. And so it's, it's very important to legitimize the coup, legitimize the agenda of the coup, to have a candidate who runs in election and win it and implements a new liberal program, but on the other hand, cover this with a law and order agenda that is signature, right? So, I mean, I think that's the political calculus that I think is behind the identification of the Tamer government with the law and order discourse now. Well, and it also seems that they're covering all the bases, right? So it's law and order, and it's also trying to cover up on the corruption or deflect, let's say, from the corruption to turn it into the law and order issue. And then also the neoliberal style reforms that I can't imagine would be very popular. They haven't been popular so far. So given all of that, should they succeed in preventing Lula, who's incredibly popular still, from being the candidate? Do you think that the assassination of Marielle will boost her political party? Is, are there other candidates in the wing who might be at the head of this resist movement that Wagner Muro was talking about? Or is it too early to say? I think it's too early to say, actually. The good thing is all left candidates, including Lula, the center-left candidate or center candidate now, declared that they would call plebiscite to recall the reforms and privatizations enacted by the current President Temer. So to advance the coup's main objectives, it's quite important to avoid Lula from running in the next presidential election, right? And Lula is by far uh, the preferred candidate in our opinion pools by now. However, it's possible that he will be in prison this month, wow. right? So the situation now is very uncertain. If he's not imprisoned, the key strategy is to register him for the election, the last possible date, which is August 30, and fight in the tribunal so that he can run on October 7 or 28, the second round. But if after the registration he's not allowed to run, the idea is to transfer his vote to the candidate of vice president in his ticket that probably will be another PT guy probably. But if Lula is not capable of even registering his candidacy because he maybe he will be imprisoned, first, Bolsonaro becomes the favorite. Second, the problem will be to know, for the left, to know if Lula is capable of transferring his vote to another left candidate. The risk now, I think, is that the left is so fragmented that no left candidate might go to the second round. It's possible. Who are the left candidates now? Well, if Lula is not allowed to run, he probably will be Fernando Haddad from PT, right? Uh-huh. Uh, if PT has not any candidate, uh, the most likely choice would be to appoint a vice president in another candidate ticket. The most likely choice would be the former governor of Ceará, who is Ciro Gomes, who is a nationally center-left candidate and preferred by the center-right of PT. Uh, he also votes to call a plebiscite to roll back the reforms and the privatizations. The preferred alliance of the left of PT is the candidate of PSOL, Guilherme Boulos. He's a very charismatic, intelligent leader of the social movement, and if he got any kind of support by PT, 
he might be a viable candidate for a second round. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Pedro Paolo, but of course we'll invite you back as all of this unfolds. The situation, of course, is one where we can't predict what's going to happen, but I want to thank you for joining us and helping us understand what's at stake and, and what it's all about. Pedro Paolo Zaluz Bastos is a professor of political economy at Campinas University, Unicamp in Brazil. He's currently in Berkeley on a sabbatical. He's the co-editor of The Era of Vargas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Susie. Thank you, and don't go away. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And I'm so pleased to have Chris Phelps with us. And the topic is British University strike and British University lecturers, which are called professors here. But they've been on a militant and a historic strike for more than a month, taking a stand not just against austerity, but for a more humane and democratic higher education system. But as Chris Phelps argues in a recent article that he has published in Dissent, and you can find it on Dissent Online, the issue is not the issue. The real issue is the deteriorating quality of work life and morale in the higher education sector, what we call here in this country literally the neoliberalization of education. The outrage in Britain has sparked thousands to join the union and to join the strike. So I've invited Chris Phelps to explain each of the issues behind the strike, its historic nature, and the settlement at hand, which looks like it's going to be a huge victory. And Christopher Phelps, the reason he's now talking from Britain is for the last nine years, he's been a senior lecturer and associate professor of American history in the Department of American and Canadian Studies at the University of Nottingham. His books are Radicals in America, published in 2015 by Cambridge, and The Young Sidney Hook. With all that, welcome, Chris. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just, for our listeners, start out with what this strike is about. I gave a somewhat of an intro, but, you know, I know that the demands begin with pensions and structures of salary, but what's really at the heart of it? The issue, first and foremost, was a restructuring of the pension plan for professionals in higher education, which is mostly lecturers, but also includes a lot of technicians and librarians and so forth who are also in the union. And this restructuring would have moved it from defined benefit to defined contribution, which I can explain in a minute. But the upshot was that the starting lecturers would be 200,000 pounds worse off, which is astronomical. And then most people would lose about 40 to 50 percent of their pension value in the payouts. So you're talking about what was estimated to be a minimum wage income for retirees under the system that they were going to. And this is what resulted in the largest strike in British higher education history over the last month. And it looks like we've now come out with what, under the circumstances, is a pretty phenomenal outcome. This newest announcement this afternoon is that the union and the employers have agreed essentially to a ceasefire mm -hmm. that puts things off for at least a year. In the meantime, there's going to be a jointly agreed panel. The union has half of the picks on the panel, and the employers have the other half, and then there's a jointly agreed chair. And that panel will be economic experts who will look at the valuation of the pension and determine its health because that's what a lot of it was at stake about. And then, if necessary, there will be adjustments afterward. But they were repudiated decisively in an attempt to completely downgrade the pensions of the higher education system, and they've had to back off of it. And furthermore, this agreement states that the premise going forward will be to retain defined benefit, which was what the real kind of core of the struggle was all about. And something that I should just say we in America are very used to because there's so few places left that have defined benefit. I've never had it, for example. Most people have no pension at all. But it's really encouraging to see that this was the issue that got everybody to fight. And probably people should know that this is – we're talking about the public university structures, right? In Britain, these are not private yeah. universities or it's everybody? Yeah, there really are no private universities like in the United States. It's a very heavily state-regulated and state-subsidized sector. 
Right. Okay. So the victory sounds to me like a victory, but the issues have not been settled. So there's still a lot yet to settle on that. But there's also more to it, isn't there? I read in your article and other articles that this really was historic because so many people joined the strike and not just over bread and butter issues. Yeah, this was the kind of circumstance where obviously if you say I'm going to cut your pension in half, you get people's attention. (laughs) But on the other hand, the scale of the strike, the extent of the strike, the fact that thousands of people flock to join the union and to take part in it. And, you know, you sacrifice pay for every day that you're out, and this was a four-week strike. And the reason for that is that there's a much deeper despair about the conditions of work life in British universities. And the strike itself was almost like a festival of freedom and liberation from all that, as people on the picket lines talked about working conditions and aspirations for a different kind of university. So there's a whole series of regulations that have come down that are at the national level that are all about milking more productivity out of the average academic. Mm. And it's essentially a kind of speed up. And everyone's under pressure to produce output units to prove that they're useful to the society, i.e. industry, and through a series of metrics show that your teaching is good, but really what that means is satisfying certain criteria, which is not really about excellence in teaching. So the average lecturer is just under an immense amount of pressure to perform and always feeling inadequate and always feeling that whatever they do, and no matter how stellar they are, it's never enough. And that kind of model and the pressures on people to get external grants, which then fund the university, but are highly competitive, so it's really hard to get them, but you're always supposed to be pursuing them. And the sheer stress, anxiety, and even then depression that in some cases has been quite tragic in its effects. And there's a case of a suicide in 2014 of a lecturer who was told, you're not meeting your grant goals. (laughs) And that's what underlay it. And that's what drives it and makes it much more than about a pension. Although it's sort of like, if you're going to do all this to us, at least let us have a retirement. Um, (laughs) And so it was about more. It was about the whole quality of life and the direction of universities and whether or not that's tolerable. But there's also, watching from abroad and looking at our own system here, we saw, too, that students joined in support, and that brought some of the kind of radical creativity that this strike seemed to demonstrate. Can you talk a little bit about that, Chris Phelps? This was extremely important in the victory. There's there's no way that lecturers walking out on strike alone could have won. And in particular, they wouldn't have won if the students had resented them and thought that they weren't getting their money's worth out of their education and so forth. But instead, the students have protested, they've demonstrated, they've written to the vice chancellors, which are the equivalent of university presidents. They've occupied the offices of vice chancellors on a number of campuses. The student unions have produced statements in support of the strike. And so, you know, there's been almost no student objected. The only note in that respect has been students writing and insisting on their fees being returned to them. If there's not going to be class held, they want their money back. And that, of course, is just a way of putting more pressure on the administrations to solve the crisis. It's not really an objection to the lecturers. It's an objection to the universities not delivering the high-quality education they're supposed to deliver. So it's really been phenomenal and fantastic, the students' support, and it's the variable that made them turn around and not push through this plan to destroy our pensions. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm speaking to Christopher Phelps. Well, and on the other hand, Chris, in your article, you really talk about the intransigence of the strikers on this fundamental issue of education as a public good rather than a commodity, which is quite inspiring and relevant, but it embodies within it this deep critique of what you've started to describe and which we are so familiar with here in a different way, not that you know, you're know you dependent on your individual grant, but that we have administrative bloat 
and that the more administrators they hire, the more admin you have to do and the more work and stress there is that has very little to do with education, but a lot to do with their justifying the jobs that they've just gotten and taken away from the pay and quality of education. But on top of that, this notion as well that this is really upending, as you've said in your article, what a university is. And we call it neoliberalization, commodification of education. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. The systems are analogous in many ways and very different in very many other ways. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to generalize, but I do think there's a kind of common experience in universities of increasing reliance on casualized academic labor, you know, mm-hmm. on special Contingent, we call people. it here. Yeah. What's that? We call it contingent labor here, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the diminishing island of good jobs to a few who manage to land them. So academic insecurity and the idea of education as a public good and not a commodity has an especial force in British higher education, because it's really only a few years since people started paying American-style high tuition. Mm. You know, all the way up until the Blair government in 1997, it was free. And then they started just charging a nominal thousand pounds a year. And then it got increased about 10 years ago to 3,000, and then rapidly to 9,000 pounds a year. So it's only been a few years just four or five years since it's become 9,000 pounds a year. And so that idea of that education doesn't need to be commodified, that it is a public good and that people shouldn't have to pay astronomical values for it is not just a kind of utopia of a futuristic society, but it's what existed in Britain for a long time. And so there's a bit of a defense of the traditional going on here and not just a kind of idealism. Also, the parents of the students will remember a very different university experience. Yeah, exactly. And so the students who have been on the side of the lecturers have been talking about what they've seen and the change that they've seen, and they don't want to be consumers. They don't want to be plunking their money down and expecting good marks in return or something like that. They want to return to the idea of students as seekers of knowledge and as creators of knowledge and they want a university that's more about freedom and mind and less about a kind of instrumental calculation of advancement in the job market. And of course, there are all kinds of competing pressures, and I can't say that that extends to every student, but it's heartening how there's a core of students who have been trying to articulate that kind of an outlook. One of the things that I got from your article and from other accounts as well of this really historic strike is the momentum and the morale, as you mentioned, the solidarity, even international solidarity that played into this, because as you say, it kind of touched something that's going on in more than just Britain in higher education. And it's kind of like also, I think, touching into a moment where the younger generation is just saying, that's enough, we're going to change this direction. I don't know if I could say that in specifics, you know, with regard to the British strike, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think this victory right now looks like and what the settlement will involve. You said it; things are on the table, but let's hear what you think of it. Well, there's an important thing that happened, which is that The strike was massive. The strike was decisive. And about three weeks into the strike, there was a deal struck between the union leadership and the employers. And that deal would have kept defined benefit, but on much worse terms. So the accrual rate was reduced, which is the rate at which money is put in so that you get a much lower payout. The level at which one was covered by defined benefit was reduced and so forth. So it would have meant somebody estimated about a 17% cut in pensions as opposed to the 40% cut in pensions Mm -hmm. that was original. And you might think, well, maybe the union members would have taken that and said, well, that's better than what we were going to get. But there was just a massive national repudiation under hashtag no capitulation. And then within one day, all of these branches, more than 40 of them, had voted against this deal. It was seen as a bad deal. And the rank and file of the union told its negotiators in London, you didn't 
strike this deal in our name. This is not why we're striking. We're striking to keep our pensions. So what's happened then in the two weeks since that is a period of great uncertainty in which, you know, I mean, will the employers still force through their defined contribution cuts because they were in a position to do that if they really wanted to? But you would have had a tremendous sourness across the whole sector. You would have had strikes going on for this spring all the way through the exam season, which would have been tremendously disruptive, and it would have just left a tremendous bad taste in everyone's mouth. Or would there be a much sweeter deal? And what we've gotten instead is sort of no deal. For a, for a year, they're going to leave things exactly as they have been. And during that year, they're going to have a jointly appointed panel that's going to look at the valuation, decide what the pension system is worth, because the employers have been claiming that there's a deficit in the pension. Now, this is a pension with 60 billion pounds of assets in it. There's no deficit right now, but they're projecting out 30 years later and saying it's going to have a hard time making its payments and its commitments. And the union has always said there's no deficit. So... Now they're going to have a panel for a year and really study this, and it's going to be a fair panel between the two sides as far as you can make out from the deal since the membership is half union, half employer, and then one agreed chair. When they do that revaluation, they'll then decide whether there need to be adjustments, but presumably they'll be much better, not only than the employer's original 40% cut, not only than the 17% deal, but something much closer to what exists now. Chris, could you say what you think the wider implications of that are? Wider implications are you can fight and you can win. That's really the wider implications. Okay. We have to leave it there, but we're going to come back to hear what happens on that. And I want to thank you so much for joining us, Christopher Phelps, Senior Lecturer and Associate Professor of American History at the University of Nottingham. And his books are Radicals in America and The Young Sidney Hook. Thanks so much. We've been talking about the historic strike in Britain, and you can read Christopher Phelps' article in Descent magazine. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. Thank you so much. And don't go away. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 